0: Hey guys, how's it going? Scott here, and I'm back with another episode of the Scott's Bass Lessons podcast. And today we have got somebody really, really special with us. Somebody who is considered one of the most recorded bass players in the history of music. They've recorded with, well, pretty much everybody you can think of, but just off the top of my head, like guys like Eric Clapton, Michael Jackson, Joe Satriani, George Harrison, Phil Collins... Stevie Wonder, Toto, Daft Punk, Herbie Hancock, is that enough for you? Probably. Anyway, so today's guest is none other than Nathan East, who is obviously a legend, a legendary bass player, Um, and and today he's sitting down with Nick over at the Scots Bass Lessons um, podcast studio, we'll call it that. And uh, and and we're going to be digging into stuff with Nick in just one minute. Before we get into the interview, I also want to give a quick shout out because we've got some really really great courses coming into the uh, the, the membership over at Scott's Base Lessons soon. A lot of you will already know that we've been over to New York and recorded a ton of courses over there with some great, great bass players. You know, guys like Steve Jenkins, Damien Erskine, Cody Wright, Rufus Philpot, Jonathan Maron, Rich Brown. You know, just a heap of great bass players. We hooked up with them over there and we recorded full courses for them. Now, over the last few months, we've been in an editing frenzy. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, Dmac and Gav here at the SBL headquarters have been uh, yeah just editing like heck and trying to get all this stuff ready for you guys and I'm happy to report that it is finally coming together and we're about to start releasing them into the membership over at scottsbassessons.com so first up we're going to have a course from Cody Wright um, and Cody is looking at playing with a pick but also tapping and effects and looping and the whole nine yards if you've not checked out Cody before he's an amazing bass player and after that we've got another course coming from Rufus Philpot. Rufus is talking about phrasing within your soloing and wait till you hear you know wait till you hear both of these plays like all of the stuff that we're recording over in New York I personally think is game-changing for bass education but I just can't wait for you guys to check it out. Now if you're not a member yet if you're not a member yet over at scottspacesessions.com, you need to check out the 14-day free trial we've got because essentially you can take out the take the entire membership for a test drive. Completely free for 14 days, just to see if it's for you. And if it is for you, then obviously you're going to get access to the entire course library. We've got like 20 to 25 courses in there. Some of them are like 10 hours long, some are fine, you know, tons of stuff. It's all step by step. And also we're going to start adding these new courses by the next one that's coming is Cody Wright's. Then it'll be Rufus Philpott's. Then I think Damien Erskine's after that. Like there's a ton of cool stuff going in there. And on top of that, on top of all the courses, we also do live seminars every week with those guys that I've just mentioned and many more, some of the best base educators on the planet. And we've got the largest online base educational community in the world as well, the whole nine yards. So go grab your 14-day free trial over at ScottsBaseEssence.com and get in among the action now. Without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to Nick and this week's amazingly special guest, Nathan East. Okay, guys, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Joined today by the incredible
1: Nathan East, um, all the way from New York. Thanks, Nathan, for joining us today.
2: Uh, hey, thanks, Nick. Good to be here.
1: Pleasure. Um, if you haven't checked out Nathan's playing. You must have been hiding in a cave somewhere for the last <laughs> 20 or 30 years. One of the most recorded players in the instrument's history, I would say, played on something like 2000 albums, is that right Nathan?
2: Some, you know what? you don't you don't keep track of everything, but uh, it's 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 up there. With, <laughs> 35 40 years of, of recording, you yeah, know.
1: Yeah, with artists like Michael Jackson, George Benson, Stephen Wonder, Phil Collins, Eric Clapton, Daft Punk a couple of years ago with the um, the Random Access Memory album, yeah. which we all knew about and checked out. Uh, and more recently, you've been branching out and doing your own thing with a, uh, two solo albums now.
2: Right, right. Two, two under the belt and just yeah. released Reverence, the second one. And um, having a good time with it so far. Sounding great.
1: What well, I was wanting to touch on first, before we get onto the solo albums, were what you think it takes to be a successful sideman what are the kind of attributes that you might need
2: oh uh, well important yeah well that's a great question i mean the the first and foremost i think is um you know just show up and be a good person <laughs> you know i i i read an article uh by quincy jones many many years ago where he said you know i'd rather have a guy that's lesser of a player than than a diva you know <laughs> in, in his, <laughs> in the studio you know so that that, that kind of stuck with me you know I mean bottom line is people want somebody that they they can enjoy being around and and obviously musically you want to bring it as well Uh, first and foremost there's a lot of things outside of the notes that you're playing that contribute to um to being a good you know good sideman
1: and how do you develop those skills or where do they even sort of you become aware of that kind of need to be that kind of person
2: yeah, I think, you know, that that starts that starts early on, you know, just in your in your general upbringing. You know, I used to kind of listen to my parents in the background and and they'd have stories of, of what went on at work and how they were getting along with with folks at, at work. And And then I just early on, I kind of realized something clicked that, wow, you, you know, in the workplace or wherever you are, that's that's kind of like the number one thing is is your relationships, you know, if you get on with people. And and so it's, it's definitely a thing I, I, I try to focus on just so that, um, you know, that won't be part of an excuse for somebody not having you around, <laughs> you know. Sure. And, you know, in, in music, I mean, if you think about it, you get called for a gig. Um, but they have every single other person on the planet. So there's thousands of people that could get that call. You know, so uh, I, I hold that in a very high place. I revere that that call, and you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is I'm I'm grateful and thankful because uh, you know, especially some of these people that, that you know they could afford anybody, they know everybody, and so if you're there, it's not by accident. It's not because oh, 10 people couldn't make it. You know, so um, those are the things that 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 stick in my mind to, even to this day.
1: And has that work ethic been with you throughout your career? I mean, what's the trajectory been
2: like for you? Oh no, absolutely. I mean, that that's been first and foremost um, in in everything that I've been involved with, and uh, even in the group situation. Many many of the situations I'm in now, you know, foreplay, and and even like a, like the Clapton band is like a family, you know. So you you really. You really want something that's, you know, my, my whole career I've always thought longevity and, and um, you know, th- these, these things end, end up being like fa- little families, Toto and, and the bands that I've worked with. Um, and, and so that, that to me is, is my approach.
1: And how much do you rely on the leadership or the direction that you're given by the, the artist to shape your, yourself as a bass player?
2: Well, a lot of times um, you're given direction and a lot of times you aren't, you know, so they pretty much once they make the call, they pretty much expect that there's certain things that aren't going to have to be said, you know, so there's like an unspoken thing. You come in there and and some things I feel like you you should know without having to be having to be told or, or guided on, you know. And, uh, and, and, and of course, those are the things instinctively that I work on as well, um, down to, okay, what's my level, what's my actual volume in relationship to this, the big picture, um, am I blasting, am I overbearing, am I underbearing, you know, for instance, today, um, Eric Clapton, you know, he came over and he said, I think overall for the whole set, you can, you can come up a little louder, you know, so that's, that's the good news, you know, that, uh. I've been asked to turn down as well <laughs> before in different situations. But, the, you know, and that's been because people have had ear problems or whatever. So, again, in my in my selection, not only am I thinking note selection, but I'm thinking about um, instinctively, is this the right part? Is this supporting? How's the volume? Um, I've judged some of these bass contests where, you know, Everybody comes and picks up the bass, they grab and then they start checking away. And the first thing I notice is nobody even cares about what volume is it's like. You're blasting; it's uncomfortable the volume that they're playing. But they just whack away, and I'm thinking to myself, "Okay, the first thing as a judge, I'm going to say is this person is not. Li-. They just came, picked up the bass, and started carving, and <laughs> and 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 uh, it, it's funny because I know it's it, a lot of young players. You want to get your you want to get your word out and what you've been doing but the first thing is is how does my volume the level fit into what's going on around me and i mean the, the first and foremost before the notes even you know so so these are all the things that uh you know every situation that i'm in and and as a leader and as a sideman that's one of the one of the most important parts is 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 what volume are you playing that
1: you know some of these productions you're playing on are quite big productions. Do you, do you still find you, do you still take the responsibility of your sound and your tone really to a high level or does it help having a, a backline and a tech and, and all these kind of things?
2: Well, well, yeah, I mean it helps having a backline and a tech but, but they're only as good as what they it, is what you give them to work with. Right. You know, so um, obviously I have my my gear that that I require you know I love my um, when when everything's there that I need you know the TC electronic amp is is what I've chosen to represent my sound Um, obviously I play Yamaha bass I have a signature bass that I play so when I have that combination of elements a good cable some good strings and a good signal uh, there's my basis for for the Nathan E sound you know and what I'm gonna give so from there the adjustments that are being made again. Uh, I go back to the the level that I'm playing, and and the choice of notes and the selection and the groove and all that stuff right there. You know.
1: You've had a long-standing relationship with Yamaha. Now go back to the oh. early eighties. <laughs>
2: Is it? Early eighties. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: How important has that
2: been for your sounding? Well, it's been um, it's been something that again, you when when I first started, I. I had different basses and I can remember having a Fender Jazz bass and I started I put all kinds of different pickups in and Di Marzio, I mean, I was I was all over the map looking for a sound. And then I had an alembic bass and and I was just really searching. And for some reason, you know, when I first heard Abraham playing that Yamaha BB three thousand or whatever it was he was playing in, and and he let me try it. Just the the way it blended with what the music that was going on, and and I ha- I have to admit, you know, once I started playing Yamaha basses, I haven't I haven't played anything else.
1: Do you think it makes other people feel comfortable as well when they see you turn up with your Yamaha, just because they 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 just recognize you with that sound and that look?
2: Yeah, I think, um, you know, when you get a call, people learn to they they come to expect a certain thing you know so i i I know that um you know a lot of things are in the fingers and everything but if i turn up if i turn up with a different rig and i've i've tried sometimes where i didn't have i was on the uh road my gear didn't make the flight or something like that it got lost in transit and then i've had to get backup gear and i just felt like i was crippled you know because i i was at a deficit. For what I start with, you know, the level that I start with, that I know that I can control everything, and um, so with my with my signature bass, it's 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 one of those things. I don't even have to look down. I can feel if I need a little more bass, mid, or treble, a um, little more front or back pickup, and and I really feel like I'm in control of of the uh, of the environment.
1: How has that changed from when you first started out? That kind of relationship well, it, you've got now.
2: Yeah again when I when I first started out I was kind of all over the map just trying to uh trying to hone what that sound and what that was going to be and before before I got to these instruments uh and and mind you I I mean I've had I've had some great basses you know music man's and and Fenders and 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 many you know many different instruments and they all have their good qualities but the thing I must say about the Yamahas is that it's almost like any type of music that I'm playing uh jazz rock and roll r and b i I can make that sound fit um and so that's that's what I've been happiest with most because there's a consistency that i'm that i'm com- very comfortable with
1: What were your early reference points in terms of a, a bass sound?
2: You know the, I listened a lot to um well I listened to everything but but um i remember in the early days people were listening to stanley clark so that that was kind of one of the everybody had to have an alembic you know so, yeah, so that yeah. was one of the things i got him but then larry dunn he was there and he had this he had his fender i think it was a fender jazz but uh, um not uh larry graham so then he was doing then Jocko pulled the frets out of his base everybody pulled frets out and made it fretless you know so you then you were Jocko, you know. So I, I think in your youth you're you're always experimenting, and and obviously that's what a lot of us did. Uh, and then as you uh, you know as you get a little more seasoned, I think you you hone it a little bit. So there's always kind of of an early searching factor, you know, which is good, I think. And and I listen, you know, uh, you know whoever was playing on these records, and Chuck Rainey and James Jamerson. Paul McCartney, all these guys were my go-to guys. Verdine White from Earth, Wind, and Fire, Rocco Prestia from Tower of Power, Peter Cetera was playing in Chicago, and then so like I was all over the map listening to guys. Ron Carter on the upright on all those CTI records, uh, Ray Brown, Buster Williams. You know, it, it was um, I was I was very eclectic in my listening
1: who would you say have been the most important people you've worked with since then not necessarily bass players but in terms of just really shaping your sound and, and the way you, you see bass in modern music
2: well i've i think um now after you know thirty five years you know of of work i think my first time working with Eric Clapton was in nineteen eighty three um so 80 90 2000 let me see it's getting up there but but he's he's been he's been a very important um collaboration only because of his staying power and and going through so many um decades of music together where it didn't really matter it it wasn't about a hit or it wasn't about even though you know you go and do a record like MTV Unplugged and it sells 30 million records or something like that, you know? And, and so he's been an important sort of mentor and, and person to learn from that, you know, you realize that through thick, through thin, through all the ups and downs and what, what have you, the one thing that, you know, he managed to get through all of those uh, eras of music and, and times and still still be standing today you know for me for me that's that's just very powerful
1: and how does that compare with something like the daft punk project that you worked on w- well
2: which was which was again you know like being dropped into this thing that blew up like that i mean yeah. it was so exciting to be part of something that just uh, around the world had such an impact you yeah
1: know? It just took off
2: yeah, it took it took off. And, and, and this is something that I would never pretend to know that you could predict. You know, you just again, you do your best and leave the rest. And, and that's what I try to do every time. And if it does go off like that big, you're just thankful that you got all the notes in the right place. You know, <laughs> And, uh, you know, I'm always happy to see um, anybody succeed and any type of success to me is is a bonus, you know. But nobody can claim to know that uh, we knew that this was going to do this. You know, we were just having the dialogue yesterday about the unplugged record, and Eric didn't even want to release it. You know, he didn't think really? it was good. At it. No, and and uh, I think there was a bet with management and record company. Oh well, this will this won't sell a thousand units. <laughs> you know, so he lost that bet. <laughs> and, what, uh, what do you remember about that gig? Oh man, I I remember the again the the honesty and integrity of okay, if we're going unplugged, we're going to unplug everything so I had an upright upright bass and acoustic um bass it it was truly unplugged, you know, so I think in the spirit of that, there was some new ground covered, and obviously you know the songs got reworked, you know you had these new versions of songs and songs that um just just worked you know for whatever reason and and again, it's the mystery of music, the mystery of life, the magic um, that keeps me going because you never you never know anything except just do your best, you know, because, you know, I've I've been on projects where you thought this was the greatest thing I've ever been, worked on and never saw the light of day. And then uh, other projects, I thought, ah, uh, the next thing you know, they were they were huge records, you know, and everything in between. So um, it it all goes into that pot. Experience and um, to this day, I feel like I'm still learning, and still uh, and still grateful for the opportunity to to be in music. You know, to, to do what I love doing, and this is happens to be my living as well.
1: How much preparation do you put into a studio session?
2: It depends. Uh, when I'm when you know, a lot of times I, w- I want to kind of get up on the on the music. So sometimes it's available to listen to. Uh, Obviously, for your own albums, it's nice to get the pre-production going in before and have as much prepared. But at the same time, I find that some things you can't really prepare for. You just the magic happens in the room, in the studio. Most of the four-play albums, we've done over a dozen records now in in over 25 years. Um, And we've talked, conceptualized, oh, what do we want this to be? But nothing ever comes out the way you talk about it. It's not until you get on the floor and play and then all of a sudden, you know, a ballad turns turns into an uptempo song or vice versa, you know. And, and things come out completely different because the interpretation ends up ultimately being uh, something that takes place right then and there in the moment. And uh, for me, that's the magic, uh, you know. So, yeah, you want to be prepared. You want to be prepared. But at the same time, nothing ever Quite prepares you for what's going to take place when you get everybody in the room and and start living in the moment.
1: So, how did foreplay come about?
2: Yeah, foreplay was um, was a result of a project with Bob James, um, a Warner Brothers project called Grand Piano Canyon. And if you listen to that record, there's a song that I call the first foreplay song called called Restoration, and and this song. You know, it was the quartet, Lee Rittenhauer, Bob James, Harvey Mason, and myself. Uh, you listen to this song, and you can hear foreplay being born. You know, there's the sound. And um, Bob, Bob was an executive at Warner Brothers Records at the time, and he, he proposed the idea of us putting a band together, you know, based on that. Again, um, which is what I love about living in the moment, you know, based on that sound of that collaboration in the studio um, you know, he was able to have the vision to say, "You know what? This, I think this could be a good band." And we, you know, we got we got signed without them hearing a note, and um, next thing you know, here we are, twenty five, twenty six years later, still still uh, playing, making records, and touring the world together.
1: And what, I mean, how important has that been? Taking that step from just being the side man, the the hired gun, if you like, to um, right working and producing and writing and composing?
2: Well, for me, I've always called foreplay my my solo career, you know, because it's given me... Uh, and and the, the original kind of mission statement was we, we want to have something as an adjunct to our regular careers, busy, working hard, but this was more going to be a, a fun thing, you know, foreplay, playing. And um, so that was... That was the original mission statement, which is kind of what we've been doing. You know, we all have other careers and in order to get together, we kind of have to put the calendar out there and say, okay, which month is everybody available? You know, and and, and now even our our performances um, are booked several months in advance based on the availability of all the members.
1: And with that band and with other um, tracks where you've taken the lead, from a composition standpoint, I know you were involved with uh, "Easy Lover." Was another one uh, right. that comes to mind. Where does the bass yeah. fit in that kind of process of, of writing, or, or is it all about music and about the song first?
2: For me, it's been the song first. Obviously, once the framework of the song is there, my next thing is is can I create a bass line that's memorable or something? You know, so "So Easy Lover" came at the end of a long week um funny enough philip Philip and I just exchanged uh text messages today, you know, so it's nice to it's nice to always kind of keep the keep the relationship intact and going and and uh we were uh we were in the studio end of a two week recording and philip said, you know we still uh, i'm still looking for that undeniable single that that the record label and everybody would just say, okay, this is the single so we we just kind of went to the piano and started. Started um, going through some chords. I I can remember thinking of what's a good tempo and and playing some chords. And it seemed like in about twenty minutes, uh, we we had pretty much the framework of the of the song. And um, I wish they all came that quickly and easily. <laughs> <laughs> but we we kind of made the demo of the track that night. We didn't have lyrics and everything, but we had we had a form and and la 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 melody ideas and everything so you know recorded the track saying okay this will be our demo tomorrow we'll listen to it come in and make make the record and when we came in the next morning listened to um, the track we made um, that was the record you know and then and then Phil Collins had these lyrics that he started singing and said oh those are the lyrics and then I was thinking you know what you sound so good this should be a duet (laughs) you know so it just happens like that you could there was no there would never be any kind of for there was no planning; that wasn't planned out. That was just all in real time. It just, it just kind of um, unraveled. And and so for me, that, that's the, the magic, magic in music. And how easy has it
1: been to transfer those skills to now being solely responsible for putting out a record with the last two albums you've done under your own name?
2: Well, it's it's certainly been more comfortable for me to to have ideas and try to formulate in my head the kind of music that I want to present. And, and basically it's, it's nothing more than my, uh, my record collection or, 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 uh, you know, uh, uh, an image based on things that I love and music. So some, some songs and and what we did is we, you know, first record, there were 50 songs listed on a whiteboard that, that we loved, you know, and, and favorite songs, whether it was, you know, Letter from Home by Pat Matheny or Van Morrison, Moon or and then mix that in with some original compositions. And then it, this was kind of the statement that I wanted to make a, a song based record um, that basically represented a lot of the s- soundtrack for my life
1: and then being at the point where all of a sudden you're booking the musicians and you're responsible for the studio time. And I, how do you get the best out of the guys like that?
2: Well, again, you know, the, the first thing you do is you, you pick up the phone and call all your friends and the, and the guys that you, you work with all the time anyway. So then there's, there's one thing out of the way that you don't have to think about. It's going to be, it's going to be great. You know, that you get, you're going to have the camaraderie, the spirit, mm-hmm. And then and then those guys are so good that even the arrangements and the concept for the songs um, seems to just it, it's really great when a, you get out there and a song kind of plays itself and and, you know, when you know, when it's an effort and you, everybody's working hard, you're doing several takes and you play it back, nobody's quite vibing it. Then, you know, that's not really the piece that you're going to lead with or, or try to try to say okay i want to present this but when it when it just comes off easy you know one or two takes everybody's dancing around the studio i want to hear it again you know that okay this is now we have something here you know unfortunately with with the a team and the good studio and 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 good material um you're setting yourself up for that kind of um experience rather than uh you know and and, you know time is of the essence you only got the good guys are only available maybe for a week at a time you know where you where I could get everybody that I want and um, we go from there and and my records fortunately um, I've been able to get the tracks recorded all the musicians in the room at the same time instead of kind of just put the bass part down on okay now I'll phone your part in where where you get something good but it's the, it's a different kind of construction rather than people responding to each other. And the good old-fashioned, old-school, we're in the studio making music together.
1: And what's it been like going from the first album now to the second?
2: You know, again, uh, pressure's on. <laughs> and it's uh, it's part of an experience that I, I just enjoy the challenge of knowing, OK, we got one under our belt. Let's see if we could do another one. And you don't want to really compare or say, OK, well, we did this. So i got to do this part 2 of this very you, you, you kind of want it to just be again organically uh, and spiritually uh, another statement of things that you uh, are comfortable with and and again like sort of like the soundtrack to to your life you know and and, uh, and and it's almost like giving birth to another baby you know whenever it happens and you're done with it it's just like a sigh of relief <laughs> to to get through it
1: <clears throat> so can you tell us a bit about this latest album um, you've got some very cool guests on there, I saw. I saw Verdine White on one track.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah, of course, now um, it, it ends up being... The, the, that's why I t- called it reverence, because I, I have so much reverence for people like Verdine White and, mm-hmm. and Earth, Wind and & Fire and Chick Corea and and, um, and Eric Clapton and Phil Collins and, and all the people that... Uh, every single person that was involved um be it if they're living if they're gone there's all this album was was designed to you know pay reverence to to those living or or not and and just music in general you know so you know to be able to call verdine white and say listen you want to come in and just put your vibe on my record uh it's just it's thrilling and and i'm honored to be able to um have friends like that that will come in and, and lend their uh, talents.
1: How much do you think that the industry has changed during your career?
2: Oh, my goodness. Um, uh, well, uh, a lot <laughs> when when you think about um, when you think about when, when I started, there were no iPhones, there were no downloads, there were, you know, there were vinyls, tape, you know, cassette tapes were kind of still in and um, CDs were just coming, so I feel like I've I've been I've seen the CD come and go, and that that literally was our livelihood. You know, a lot of people um, that have been in the game because of the way the changes go, it, it has determined whether they've been able to stay in or not. Um, and in a way, you know, you're always happy with new developments. Um, but at the same time, it's a completely different industry than it was, you know, 30, 30 years ago.
1: What advice would you give to someone trying to make a living in today's music industry, today's world, trying to get to grips with the forever changing technology, the forever changing, um, yeah, the taste, you know, what people want seems to change all the time, right. What do you think you, know, you need to survive as a musician?
2: You know, and and again, nobody really has the answer to that question anymore. <laughs> you know, because, <laughs> because in, in all honesty, sometimes you, you almost have to say, don't do it. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> pick something up. I mean, I'm at, you know, my son Noah played on both my records, you know, and, right. and he came in and did a fantastic job. And he's at the age of 16. He's now sorting out what he wants to do and what, you know, what he's going to major in and go into. Uh, obviously, you know, he has he has it for for music. Uh, there's a gift that he has. It, it's for me, it's God given. I recognize it and I'm, and I'm appreciative and, and very supportive at the same time. Um, but even he understands that now with, with the way the industry has gone, you know, I think he realized that there's a certain business sense that you have to be able to accomplish. Nowadays, I I believe somebody has to be able to write, play, engineer, produce. I mean, there's a lot of things and you have to be more of an entrepreneur. And now we, now we take our our records and product on the road with us and we we're kind of like walking retailers because there's no more record stores <laughs> so we sell cds and merchandise at the gigs and there's a lot of um it's just it's a different way to get the music out there um that being said i go on youtube and and, and blown away on a daily basis by some of the new uh new people i hear and the sounds and so uh, we're we're living in a very exciting time for music, and and those that are strong enough to survive um, are blessed.
1: And what do you think's next for the bass guitar? It's it's changed so much in the last sort of forty
2: years or so. Yeah, it's it's changed. I think it's changed to the point where, um, for me, I'm still trying to keep. I'm just trying to keep it as an anchor, you know, mm-hmm. as as a solid instrument yet you know even even i, I just come from rehearsal even today i'm trying to i'm trying to figure out new ways to to do the same thing you know how to bounce a note how to you know and i, I listen even clo- more closely to the drums and then realize that you got to be playing with a great a great drummer as a bass player and Steve Gads over there to my right, so uh, I'm pretty lucky. I, to- I told him, I said, "You you make my job easy. You know, it's 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 not a job. Um, so, you know, by surrounding yourself with great people, um, and just kind of keeping the standards high, but there's no again, you know, it's, it's like life. There's a mystery about it. There's no real rules, and there, it's it's hard to predict what um, you know what the next move is. So I, I kind of keep a firm grip on what I, what I do know and understand and try to keep that, you know, make that as solid as possible.
1: Nathan, just want to say thank you so much for taking some time out to talk to us today. Please go and check out Nathan's new record reverence out on all the major platforms, right? Nathan.
2: Uh, uh, That's out on Amazon, iTunes, and yeah, all the, all the major platforms. And and it's always great to to catch up, Nick. You know, I, I love it when, um, when we're really and we have a unique community and bass players, and and now I think that bass is, has really become um, more in the forefront, you know, than it's ever been these days. You know, I feel like uh, the average person knows what a bass is. You know, right. before before you know, you were just up there. Oh, they're holding the guitar, you know. <laughs> but I feel like people people know what bass is about now, and um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for that, and and I. I feel like uh, it's my responsibility to try to do my part to keep to keep that, uh, to keep keep that it out there.
1: You're doing a great job. Ah, oh, cheers. <laughs>
2: Thanks much. Yeah, I appreciate it.
1: Where can we see you coming up? You've got some shows coming up with Eric Clapton that you're rehearsing for right now.
2: Yes, we're playing Madison Square Garden um, in New York this weekend. Then we'll go to Los Angeles to do the Los Angeles Forum. And then we're coming over to London to play Royal Albert Hall in May. Um... I'll put a bunch of these dates on the, on the website because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm uh, dividing my time this year between my shows, um, mm-hmm. Eric Clapton, Foreplay, mm-hmm. and Chick Corea has actually asked me to do come in and step into a couple shows with the electric band. Wow. Subbing for John Patitucci. Yeah. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. who does an amazing job. And, and we just played Java Jazz Festival last week. We just did a couple nights over there. Uh, and the first thing... Um, Frank Gambale said to me when I showed up, he said, welcome to the electric chair. <laughs> and, uh, you know, had a ball playing with those guys. Chick is a phenomenal musician and I, and I feel very fortunate, very blessed to, to you know, be involved in all these great musical situations.
1: John always tells me that the thing with Chick is that his comping is so strong.
2: Right. Yeah, He his comping is so strong, he kind of, he kind of gives you support. Like he's, He's your private jet yeah. <laughs> when, 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 you're, when you're taking a solo, for instance, you know, and, and he's got he's got a wealth of, of amazing ideas. So I kind of I kind of sit there and listen to to what he's doing and then it sends you off on a, a you know, on a great journey. It's oh. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah it's a, I feel very lucky, you know, Looking and to have to him on my you. record. Absolutely,
1: yeah. yeah. Looking forward to seeing those gigs, Nathan. And thanks again. Yeah. Um, all the best for the shows. Um, yeah, go and check out Nathan's album, Reverence. It's really, really good, guys. You're going to love it. Um, and we'll catch you again same
0: time next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Nathan. Cheers, Nick. Okay, guys, hopefully you enjoyed that interview with the amazing Nathan East. Again, you can find him from all the links we've put in the show notes for you over at scottsbassessons.com. Just go to the website, click on the podcast in the top nav, and you can see Nathan's interview along with all of the other interviews we've done. You know, guys like Hadrian Farrow, uh, Ricky Miner, Andrew Goucher, (laughs) <laughs> Divinity Rocks, like we've, you know, we've interviewed a lot of bass players. We've, we're coming up to number sixty, I think, around sixty podcasts now. Um, so there's a lot of stuff for you to check out. And remember as well, if you're an academy member, you can also watch the entire video versions of all the interviews as well. And if you're not a new academy member yet, you need to go check it out at Scotsbassessons.com because in a nutshell, it's the best online pl- learning platform for bass players in the world. We've got step by step self study courses in there, live seminars every single week where you can interact in real time with some of the best bass educators on the planet guys that teach at places like la music academy um uh, berkeley over in boston like these are serious guys and there's a ton of other cool stuff in the membership as well so go check it out at scottsbassessons.com and grab your 14-day free trial Uh, you will love it trust me now again thanks again for listening again today guys Uh, next week we've got another another amazing guest with us Um, but until then take it easy and I'll see you in the shed